Good morning. I'm having so much fun with David's series, and as heady as it is, I hope you all are enjoying it as well. We are all over the place today, mostly because of me branching off into a million questions and comments for every one of David's statements. You all are really getting an understanding of the inner workings of my brain. There were times in editing when I'd hear myself ask a question and I'm thinking, how did I make this jump? Sometimes I barely make sense of myself, but I guess figuring myself out is part of why I do this podcast in the first place. So in case you guys don't know, the conscious is your awareness of your own existence. The conscience is your sense of discernment between right and wrong. I might have conflated and or confused one or the other in multiple points of this episode. I hope that hearing myself make the mistake is penance enough in the eyes and ears of a critical audience. It's a pretty great episode otherwise. I hope your week is sprinkled with some pink salt and I hope you enjoy this episode. Talent is cheaper than table salt. What separates the talented individual from the successful one is a lot of hard work. Upon learning this quote, table salt became my symbolic reminder to keep up the hard work. This developed into pink salt, the hard work that goes into successful relationships. The idea for this podcast was born of my innate curiosity about intimacy and relationships, and I wanted to include the spectrum of relationships, intimate but also familial, professional, even individual relationships, to finances, food, faith, you name it. The relationships that take up space in our lives are endless, yet many of us feel societally imposed taboo when those relationships get difficult and maybe need some elbow grease. Pink Salt reminds us to have grace for the people and things around us when things don't go as easily as we pictured. I'm your host, Jacqueline Chantel. Let's get to work. Listen, subscribe, and leave a review. Future Dr. David Suarez is back for round two. We couldn't get enough of you, so we invited you back. How are you? I am excellent. I am excellent. How are things over there? Things are great. Are you excited for this four-part series that uh, is all you? I'm so excited. I love I love this kind of talk. This is what I do all the time at the cafes. <laughs> with people around here and my huge list of questions they ask me all the time. So this is perfect. I'm excited. Um, last week we had your first interview, which actually happened months ago. Since then, the pandemic has like technically ended, I guess. And there's a war across the world that's hugely affecting us here. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to know what you think about those things in this framework of religion and faith and suffering. But I think let's start on apologetics and physics because your story is that you were going to school for medicine, right? And then you kind of had this series of of learning where you you started learning about physics and then you kind of 
that became the doorway of uh there there can't it had everything has to come from something so exactly. if people believe in physics then inherently they believe in god exactly so let's start with apologetics and physics perfect perfect well this is one of my favorite fields um yeah you're correct i, I love studying physics usually more so optics but i like a bit of the quantum stuff as well that's also fun for discussion um i love biology uh, I really love microbiology, how cells adapt and mold and develop. Uh, genetics is so wonderful. Uh, but to start, I think physics is a great foundational discussion um, because it's perhaps one of the most intuitive discussions you can have about uh, apologetics and about understanding who God is and the necessity for God. Tell us what optics and apologetics are. Oh, yes, yes. So optics is... Uh, a field of physics which relates to the nature of light um, and the interaction of light with uh, other types of matter, which is very, very confusing because um, optics gets into quantum physics because light is just a really strange thing um, because it's a particle and a wave. But if you don't look at it, it's both. But when you look at it, it becomes one or the other. Um, it's very confusing. Uh, it, it almost becomes its little type of Trinity thing in a weird physics way. Um, you love a Trinity. I do. I, you know, uh, I'm a little biased. <laughs> I'm a little biased, I, but I, I do love it. I, I love to see the nature of order in creation. But the best place to start is the beginning. And apologetics is, by the way, uh, just the general idea of the logical defense of a position. So in my case, uh, Christian apologetics is the logical defense of Christian faith. Um, there's so like is there apologetics in every study? Technically, yes. Um, you could say that there's um, atheist apologetics uh, with like Bart Ehrman, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris and his letters, you know, Letter to a Christian Nation, um, Dawkins and like, you know, the uh, his original The God Delusion book um, in which he takes 50 percent of the book to talk about how evil and good we should get rid of. But then takes the other half of the book to say God is evil. I don't like him. And I'm like, all right, just choose one. Yeah. <laughs> how many how many books do you think you've read? You're like ever? <laughs> I have no idea. That's a good question. <laughs> I try not to think about it. Yeah. Because right now you have about 50 books behind you, right? Would you say that's about 50? That sounds about right. This one's one of my favorites. That's the C.S. Lewis signature classics. So good. I love C.S. Lewis. So all right. Good. So I've got to get that one. It's amazing. It actually has five or it has six different books in it. So it's nice because then you could just go through all of C.S. Lewis's best non-Narnia works. Well, but he, okay. So those 50 books behind you, I think for some people, 50 books is like, I haven't read that in my lifetime and I probably won't. And for some people it's like, eh, that's like cake. But how many of those books, because those are just what you're studying right now. So how many of those books have you read and how much time? I Let's see. This is the... So it's April, the semester started like mid end of January. So I guess from January to now, I had to read through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, oh no, no, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15. I read that one a lot of times. I love that one, 15, 16, uh, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. I love C.S. Lewis, 22, 23, 24. Four, had to do that one 25 26 still not through this one so i guess 26 
26 uh, books in three months. Yeah, because some of them I'm reading, but I haven't completed. But okay. the ones I've actually fully completed, it's it's 26 of those. Can you give me reading lessons? <laughs> yes, I can. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> I need to read faster so yeah. I can there's know more things. Really, there's actually really good logical methods I can talk about at the end to show how to read more efficiently. But that's please that's education books over there, which is a different thing. For Efficiency is my problem because I'll read really fast and then I'll be like, what did I just read? And <laughs> I can't remember it enough to talk about it. <sighs> I get that. I, get that. I can't. I can't apologetically defend my position on any book that I read <laughs> that's a, that's actually, a certain pace. That's actually a proper, that is a proper use of apologetic. <laughs> so that's, yes. that's perfect. Well done. Thank Even you. in the Greek, the original Greek term, but um, yeah. That, that, I will take my PhD now. Thank you. You're welcome. Here you go. <laughs> so let's see. So yes, to, sorry, I got so, I, I love those books. So to start with physics, uh, I think the best place to start is the beginning. And so we have to look at physics in the orderly nature of physics, that being the laws of physics, those things which are unbreakable, those things which are mathematically and logically true. Um, and one of the best ways to start is the laws of thermodynamics. Um, one of the main concepts in that being that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It simply changes form. Um, this actually also goes with a different law of physics, which states that matter cannot be created or destroyed. It simply changes form. So these are two laws that are just true. You can't make new matter. You know, you can smash some matter together, but uh, that's not making new matter. You're not making new atoms, right? Um, you can't make new matter. And you also can't destroy. Even if you rip an atom apart, you're ripping into smaller, or a molecule apart, you're ripping into smaller atomic stuff. So you're not really making or destroying. You're just changing form. Matter and energy interchangeable. That, that's what Einstein's equation also deals with. Energy equals mass times light squared. Um, and so since we understand these laws that you can't create energy or matter, you can't destroy energy or matter, then we would expect that the universe has no beginning. Because if energy and matter cannot be created, then a universe, the universe literally being energy and matter, um, cannot have a creation point. However, the universe does have an origin, a point of creation, right? We have the, the Big Bang. We know that from uh, the other law, uh, some other laws of physics, which is that all energy tends towards entropy, which is towards heat. So if uh, in every interaction, everything I do, energy is lost as heat. If I do this, my hand hits the friction of the air, and, it, and some energy I used is lost as heat energy. Everything turns to heat. Um... Uh, we call that entropy. And then eventually what a lot of scientists say is that there's going to be an entropic heat death of the universe. They say there's a certain amount of energy in the universe. And so eventually, since we know that all energy is lost as heat eventually, then all gonna, there's going to be a point where all energy in the universe that isn't heat will have eventually been used up and turned into heat, which means that there is some certain numerical amount of energy. And eventually it'll all just be turned into heat. And there's no way you can't do anything with heat energy. That's just the end of the road for it. You know, too bad. That's just the end state of it. So the reason this is important is because if... Well, wait. Oh, yeah, go ahead. If, 
if the energy, if heat energy is the end of the road for energy, what happens to it? It just like, well, because you said it can't be destroyed. It just changes form. So So once it's heat, it just is heat forever. Exactly. At that point, it's just, that's, it becomes this static, uh, unchanging base of energy, just this infinite expanse of heat. Well, not infinite, actually a, a limited expanse of heat. Um, you can't do anything with it. If we could, then I guess life on earth would have looked a lot more different and life in the universe would be very different because then we'd have cycles, but we don't, you know, things die. Yeah. Um, and I'm just imagining like the earth just blows up. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. <laughs> Is that you what know? happens next? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe Well, humans will cause that to happen, but um, so in, in, depressing. It, it's true. Yeah. In some parts it's true. Um, but in, the, in this understanding of the universe, which is an inherent logical law, if the universe was infinite and eternal, then we would have already reached a heat death. We would have already had all energy expand, expended into heat because we literally would have had an eternity to do so. Um, so but we know that we're not in a heat death because we're still here. You know, not every single little bit of energy in the universe has been squeezed into nothingness. Mm-hmm. Um, we also know that the Big Bang from Albert Einstein working with, um, oh my goodness, how am I forgetting that massive telescope? Uh, Hubble, Edward Hubble and his, and his telescope, they work together along with a bunch of other physicists to see that the universe has an origin point, a logical or- origin point from which everything, or a nothingness point from which everything came out. And so we have a logical reason to believe that the universe has a beginning. Um, and we have a logical reason because we know that the universe has not ended yet, that it will have an end. And if it is going to have an end, it must have a beginning logically. So, um, so this is just the standard logical mathematic way to understand physics in the universe, right? It's a beginning and an end. We know that there's a beginning because we haven't reached the end because we're still around. Um, and because mathematically not all heat has been, not all energy has been expended into heat death which means we know it doesn't go on infinitely past, right? Because then we would have already reached the heat death a long time ago, literally an eternity ago, Mm -hmm. um, to be more specific. So then we can understand, all right, the universe has a beginning, but this is really, really problematic in a certain sense. Um, Because if the universe has a beginning, as Einstein and Hubble and every other major scientist now in the world in physics uh, explain, uh, then that means that there's a beginning to energy, time, and matter. So if we understand the universe has a beginning, and the universe, again, is the temporal beginning uh, with matter and energy at the same time, because that's what the universe is, then we understand that there is a beginning to time, energy, and matter. This is really problematic, that there's a beginning to energy and matter, because the fundamental law of the universe is that you cannot create energy or matter but the universe has a point at which energy and matter was created this is a paradox right this is this is a fundamental paradox Uh, technically the universe by its own laws should not exist you know this paradox right this this paradox uh, recognized logically in physics where we have this state of nothingness Um, and i think it's really important to emphasize just how nothing nothing is um because 
I saw multiple podcasts and videos where Neil deGrasse Tyson and a host of many other of the world's prominent physicists spent two or two and a half hours trying to define what nothing is. And then Mm -hmm. I think the main host, who's not even a physicist, just got really upset and said, that's not nothing. That's something. And they're like, well, then maybe the universe is a programmed computer. And then they just gave up because, you know, but then even if that's the case, who programmed it? Exactly. Right. Programming. That's exactly right. You know, that's that's the logical framework people should have. Sadly, the world's top scientists forget about that um, because it requires logical uh, (laughs) backwards thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, So exactly. And, And so now we're in a state of literally nothing. There's no energy. There's no matter. There's no time. We're just in a state of nothingness. And then from a state of nothingness, then just seemingly without a cause, well, of course it's without a cause because there's literally nothing, um, then everything goes comes into existence. But not just like energy and matter come into existence, energy and ma- matter paradoxically come into existence. It's one thing if, you know, this is theoretical, obviously, but it's one thing if there was a universe where energy and matter could be created and destroyed. And that universe popped into existence, right? And energy and matter were there. That's mm-hmm. not the case with our universe, though. The simple truth that the simple truth is this. Our universe is a universe in which the very things that need to be brought into existence for the universe to exist by the own universe's laws should not be brought into existence. And so we have a fundamental paradox. Now, some scientists, I saw an old um, interview on, I think it's Colbert show before he was like really big on, on one of his other older shows. And he, he's a Christian. Uh, and there was an atheist scientist speaking about how uh, we know that there, he said, the scientist says, we know that there's no God because we've understood now that uh, in a state of nothingness, um, um, he says, nothingness is unstable. Now, of course, this is a totally illogical statement. Nothingness cannot be unstable because that requires some perspective by which it would be stable. But there is no perspective or standard to judge it because it's nothingness before everything else. Before everything else. It's actually else. such a hopeful statement. Yeah. yeah that like, nothingness is unstable. That yeah, means that even when you feel like there's nothing, something is going to come of it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very so hopeful. hopeful. You know, in a human sense, that is. In a physics sense, it's utter nonsense. But that's a good point. (laughs) For a discussion in the bleakness of the world, I think we can actually kind of circle back to that. Yeah. Um, But um, in the beautiful way, actually, what I love in in scripture talks about this in First Peter, New Testament. Peter talks about how, you know, we know that the Lord made all things from those things which are not, which are just are are not, you know, which are uh, sometimes translated as invisible, like all things which are were made from things which just are not, which are not seen or known. Um, and so the beauty is that in this paradox, there is a logical necessity that must be understood and explained. We must understand how a universe could, number one, come into existence from nothing, you know, because nothing is not unstable. Nothing is Do nothing. we understand that? Under a logical framework, yes. In a physical model, it's literally paradoxical. It's literally impossible. Okay. Well, I'll say in physics, it's mathematically and intellectually impossible. But we know it's not impossible because, you know, we're here, right? Uh, So so experientially in a 
by science and observation, obviously the universe is a thing. Uh, but logically and intellectually, in physics alone, there's no way to understand this because it's a paradox intrinsically. Mm-hmm. But this is the power, and this is why you actually see a lot of physicists, and especially theoretical and quantum physicists, who either lean towards theism, which is a general belief that there must be a God, um, or specifically, you know, Christianity. Um, more often than not, theism, because Christianity takes a bit, you actually have to like take the time to choose, okay, there is a God, now I must understand him, right? Um, but there's a lot of physicists who tend towards theism, believing that there must be a God because of the paradox of physics, um, the logical paradox of physics. It's, it's well justified. And so now we have to understand how a universe with matter, energy, and time can come into existence from non-existence. It can't do so by itself because it did not exist. So it cannot will itself into existence. That, that's also a paradox, right? It did not have a will in the first place. So it could not will itself to exist if it didn't exist yet. Uh, that, that's just a logical paradox. So we need something or to uh, input and read into it, my own view, someone uh, who is not bound by time since time is not a thing yet, Um, who is not bound by matter because matter is not created yet, who's not bound by energy because energy is not a thing, who is not bound by the nature of order, you know, like a created order because that's nothing's been created yet. Um, and something or someone who is powerful enough to make literally everything out of nothing. And also it, uh, this person must be personal because in order for nothing to turn into literally everything with a cause, there must be a will for a cause to come about. Otherwise we would just have tons of universes popping up all the time inside of each other, right? Just like, oh, I looked inside of my car this morning and there was just a whole new universe, our exact same size popping up, destroying ours in the process. Thankfully, our universe is not being constantly destroyed. Um, if that were the case, then we'd all be you know, already dead uh, multiple times over. So now we, have, now we have the understanding of an immaterial, all-powerful, atemporal, like beyond not needing time, um, uncreated, personal cause of the universe. Uh, even Aristotle uh, logically tries to conclude that this is the uncaused first cause, uh, because logically for there to be one who has caused all things, there's eventually a point, even mathematically, you come together where it's like, okay, but then there must be one who is before all of this, who does not need a cause, who just mm-hmm. is. Uh, The beautiful beautiful thing about this logic is that in scripture, the name of God that he explains to Moses is just I am. God just says of himself, I am. And that's perfect because. Right. Yahweh. Exactly. That's exactly right. You know, Um, and that name I am Yahweh is such a powerful explanation of the simple truth that even in Greek thought. Um, and every other philosophical form of thought before any of that is even a principal concept, God explains Yahweh, just I am. He is the uncaused first cause. He, he, he does not have a beginning or an end. He's atemporal. Time is not such a thing that he is bound by. He just is. Uh, and he, it fits all of those logical necessities that we explain physics as being, you know, otherwise being a paradox. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's powerful. It's a powerful claim, just not even necessarily needing to go into scripture at all, but just looking at the fact that we're looking at a cause who is powerful, atemporal, um, uh, personal, uh, uh, immaterial, not needing material to be, just is. And then also, uh, I'd even say all-knowing, or at least very careful, because, by the way, the universe has exactly the same number of positive and negative charges throughout the whole thing. If there was one more positive or one more negative charge in anywhere in all of the universe, then it would have, at that moment, right then and there, crunched back, right? Because now we have, oh, there's one more positive charge than there is a negative charge, which means now there's too much of an attraction. And so every single bit of you know material in the universe would have just kind of crunched back right then and there because mm-hmm. then we have too much attraction but because there's a perfect balance throughout all of the entire universe of positive and negative charges the universe is it, it, it is perfectly balanced and so all of those come together to describe a cause to try to sound as agnostic about it as possible a cause which fits all those qualities but the most proper and logical uh, individual or person being, I mean, most proper being by whom all of these characteristics can be properly assigned is the God of scripture. Um, Because he perfectly fits all those standards without even having to look in scripture in the first place. There must be a God, which is why physicists tend towards theism. Like, okay, there must be a God at least. It's so simply stated by you that I'm, I guess I'm just like, why are there so many people who resist believing it? That, you know, that's an excellent question. Um, I'd almost have to go back to that Colbert uh, episode because what's genius is that after the scientist says, you know, we don't need, uh, we don't need any type of God. There's no logical proof of a God because things just kind of popped into and out of existence in the nothingness. And then uh, I think, I'm pretty sure it was Colbert. He said, so you're saying that God is, you know, just nothing. And the man said, yeah. And he said, so you're saying that God could have just popped into existence out of nothing. And the whole crowd laughed. And as simple a claim as that is, and even the scientists are like, huh, you know, and it, it, it might've sounded like a joke, but it's actually a very powerful, simple statement mm-hmm. that any attempt to resist is not logically founded. It's personally founded. Mm-hmm. Um, although in that case, that scientist was not an atheist. He was an anti-theist. But I don't uh, think there, I think more people, because the world isn't made up of scientists who can posit these ideas. <laughs> there are a few and most people then will listen to these scientists and still the things that are being said go right over their heads. So it's not that they're making an attempt to resist. They just are resistant. And that's fair. That's fair because I, I have met some, right? I've, I've met some who used to be atheists and are now Christian because of months and months of discussion, a lot of discussion. Goodness. That's actually where that paper comes from, by the way, mm-hmm. just like the first three months of that nine month discussion. And the truth is that there, there is a, there's a couple of different camps of people. Um, and I do understand why this is difficult. There's some people who just, take whatever they hear from 
the group of people around them or the people most popular online. And they kind of just assume, you know, uh, humans are probably trustworthy, right? I, I can probably trust whatever this person is saying, you know? Um, and they just kind of assume like, of course, this person's an infallible, perfect scientist genius because, you know, a lot of people believe them, right? Um, I, I'm a more skeptical person. I guess that's just my nature. Uh, and so that's what, you know, led me more strongly to Christianity and, and more deeply rooted in it because I'm skeptical. I think that's uh, slightly ironic. I know, right? You know, <laughs> it's evolutionary within our benefit to be trustworthy. Yeah, yeah. isn't it hilarious, right? Well, sometimes it, it, it depends. Um, uh, because of the manipulation tactics of some camouflage-based octopi uh, and, and those types of animals, they're so good at deception that for some males, it's better that they're uh, more skeptical because some of the males will pretend to be females just so the other male oct octopus will like come over. It's like, you know, so but for human beings, tribally, it's definitely within their benefit to feel that they can trust and be trustworthy mm. because if you're well, not, yeah, I mean, within reason, but you wouldn't, you probably would spend time being skeptical in your head before you made any sort of uh, accusations or claims that somebody was not trustworthy because then yeah. you'd be exiled by people who are comfortable. True. Um, that, that works. The, the issue is tribalism supports greater trustworthiness in your tribe, but greater skepticism against with other tribes. Yeah. Um, now the weird thing is with humans, Humans are very strange, I guess, because under a tribalistic sense, right, which is where we get general racist tendencies in humanity, basically the worst parts prejudice, of Prejudice, I would say. What was that? Prejudice. Yeah, prejudice general. and then the uh, general usual tendency towards racism, because then you have a better physical and violent attack, which allows you to get more resources from other people. That's Sorry, that's the evolutionary discussion. I can get onto that. Yes. That's a really, really fun <laughs> Um, but just with the general physics uh, topic as it is, it's a beautiful, powerful thing. And I think a lot of people also just the, the closer you get to recognizing the necessity, we call this aseity. Um, it, it's, it's the quality of God, which is just his very necessary existence by him being himself, um, aseity, which just means inherent necessity. Uh, but the issue is that the closer you get to understanding that logical framework by which the whole world becomes a far more internally and externally consistent, you know, like self and externally reflective analysis, right? Uh, there is a part that's a little bit painful. This is actually what Jordan Peterson, I, I appreciate Jordan Peterson so much because like C.S. Lewis, he talks about how wildly painful it is to take that step into Christian faith, not because it's illogical, if anything, logic is what brought Jordan Pearson and C.S. Lewis towards it. It's more so the emotional depth of Christianity that, as C.S. Lewis says, you know, that hideous strength, that glorious fear, right? That um, that thing which makes me undone and makes me new. Uh, as if yeah, it's like an ego death. In a, in a sense, actually, not in a sense. Yes, it is. It's very much so recognizing that you are not the center, right? Mm -hmm. um, that it is, life is not about you. God loves you and God gave his son for you. 
knowing all the evil and all the all the evil things that people would do and how people would hate God, God still um, gave himself as a sacrifice. Another point of irony, because the question begs then what is the point of life? But also, if God would create us with a conscience that has these three layers to it of like id, ego, super ego, that is essentially to protect you, then what is it about if it's not about you? Yeah, well, well, <laughs> that, that's that's actually a fair question. I think, uh, and Jordan Peterson gets into this a bit, because I think Jordan Peterson pushes back on the id ego and super ego um, claims from, uh, oh my goodness, how am I, uh, Freud, goodness. I almost forgot about Freud. That would have been really funny. Sometimes I, I want to. Don't sometimes worry, I, you'd still be way smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, sometimes I want to forget about Freud. He's a very upsetting character, uh, historically <laughs> and just personally. But the it ego and super ego is clever, but it does, sadly, it misses out in a certain sense on the biological and non-biological aspects of humans, right? Uh, for instance, I... This might be like just a personal cop out, but I guess I prefer brain, mind, and spirit, um, which are not equivalents at all. But they are three portions of because Paul talks about this in a sense in, in scripture. He says, you know, my flesh. We, we would call that our brain. You know, um, my my flesh is at war with my mind, and my mind at war with my spirit because um, mm -hmm. my the things I want to do I do not do, but the very things I hate doing I still do. Yes. You know, Paul as a as a Christian like. He's a Christian and he wants to do what is good and right according to the Lord, but sometimes he just doesn't. And then sometimes there's things that he knows what he's doing is wrong, but he does anyway. And he's like, this is a mystery to me. Well, it's not a huge mystery. And it's, it's more like you're doing it because God is there, but you have to have faith. You can't see him. And then there's society and the world that is right there in front of you posing all kinds of distraction. danger exactly. and distraction. And, and so then the thing that is right isn't necessarily the thing that seems like it's going to protect you. So that's what you end up choosing to do because it's, it's a lot easier. Exactly. And that's true. And I guess that's a more hopeful way. There are some times when humans. I don't think that sounds hopeful at all. Well, well that sounds like ah, making a lot of bad decisions. Well, that's true. I, I mean, specifically in the part about the thing that we think will protect us, because sometimes humans yeah. know the things that just are not healthy. Yeah. Just at all. And we're like, but what if I did, though? You know, because <laughs> that's just how humans well, are. Exactly. It's like the uh, vices, for instance, are are at face value, quote unquote, bad and wrong, and we shouldn't do them, whether it's sex, alcohol, drugs, too much TV, too much Instagram, too much of whatever it is that you're consuming mm -hmm. is bad or wrong or, or painful or, you know, um, toxic or whatever it is unhealthy. But those are the things that help you cope with the, the grief and the suffering that you're talking about with C.S. Lewis and Jordan Peterson that 
they found God and choosing faith in God is sometimes not as easy as the vice that's going to just make you forget about the suffering. That's 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 true. Actually, that that's well said. Because um, P- uh, C.S. Lewis in his book that I don't think he ever wanted released, "Grief Observed," because it was literally just a collection of the letters he wrote after his wife died, um, and then his son decided to collect them and you know um, make them into a book. And Jordan Peterson talks about this. Of course, a lot of Christian pastors and teachers talk about this. The world does offer very transient, temporary, um, temporally based dopamine hits, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what the world offers are these things which do seem on the surface level to offer some sort of general minor comfort, right? Like you eat, you you take a hit of this and you'll for a very small period of time feel a little bit better, right? You, mm-hmm. you won't have to deal with the crushing weight of whatever insert cultural concept you're dealing with at the time or existential threat. Uh, just insert that into the, the statement. And then after an hour, two hours, then either you're left feeling literally empty, nothing, as if it literally did nothing to help you at all after the two hours of dopamine hit is over, or you feel worse than you did before because yeah. now you're like, now that I recognize how meaningless that was and also that I I feel like I just either lost some brain cells or I just gave <laughs> this person something that they just did not deserve. I don't know why I did that, right? This person was not worth it. Um, then you're left even worse than you were before. And the, the, that's kind of the beauty, I guess, in, in, in analyzing the Christian worldview that it it calls for a very powerful thing we call long suffering. Which is not to say that everything's suffering, but that in waiting for change, in waiting for personal development in a process we call sanctification, it's just growing to be more like Christ. You know, we'll never be there. We'll never be perfect in, you know, in this life at all. That's impossible. That's the whole, that's why Christ came for us. Thank God for that. Um, so it's not like you're trying to set up this perfect moralistic standard because perfectionism does not work in Christian living. That is a thing that the Bible is very much so strongly stating. Don't expect yourself to be perfect, but do what is right. And if you don't do what is right, then pray that God will give you the strength to do what is right the next time, right? It's So what's the point then of life? Yeah, it is to love God and uh, well, I guess love God, which the scripture says is to actually believe in him and love him and follow him. Um, so is God a narcissist for like making a bunch of people just to, Oh no, uh, I've heard, Oh, this is, I've seen this uh, question before. So God does not need people. I think that's actually a really important thing to explain real quick. Cause our concept of love and care and attention in the world is based off a bunch of, you know, humans that actually love other people some or like other people sometimes for a benefit to be received for Mm -hmm. themselves or to get attention for themselves. God is an infinite being. You cannot add to God or take away from God. You, you just cannot. So God being infinite, perfect, um, three persons, one being before the foundation of literally everything is in a perfect state as he is. He is, he is not lonely, you know, because he, he is three persons in one being, you know, he's not lonely. He simply makes creation because he wants to share the beauty of his creation with his creation. He just simply wants them to experience the beauty and the glory 
uh, of his very existence. And so you, you're not like, you know, when you glorify God in praise and worship, it's not actually that you're adding glory to God. Like, you know, there's an empty bank and we're filling it up. If anything, and this is a very common uh, biblical teaching, our glorification of God allows us to experience his nature and his glory. Uh, you're not adding to God. You know, there's, there's nothing. But that wasn't the question. The question is. Well, well you, you asked is, if, is he, if God a narcissist, but that's the yeah. thing. Is a that the definition of narcissism? Narcissism is desiring for people to put all. Fill up. You know, to like uh, put all their attention on you because you, mm-hmm. you need it and because that, that, that's a necessity. There's something empty there. Yeah, exactly. But the issue is that, again, that's assuming that God needs something. He doesn't love us because we give him something. He didn't make existence because he gives him something. He simply wanted to share his glory with his creation. So it is the answer to the question that he's not a narcissist. If anything, he's abundantly generous. purely altruistic. I mean, technically, he's purely (laughs) good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's what the scripture says. He is, he's not, he doesn't just do good things. He is goodness. Yeah. He doesn't just love people. He is love. He doesn't just tell the truth. He is truth. So what do you think about psychedelics? Have you done any research on psychedelics? Oh, oh, research. Yes, I have done lots of research on psychedelics. Sure. Well, you were, you were just shaking your head. Why were you shaking? No, your head? At first I thought you were going to say, have you ever done psychedelics? <laughs> no, I feel yeah. like I'd already know the answer to that. <laughs> um, but I'm curious what you think about them. And sure. also I think I've, I've heard somewhere that, you know, because they are um, natural, naturally they're mushrooms basically and other things, psychedelics are other things that are naturally occurring that there are stories in the Bible where people may have had psychedelic experiences. I've heard this claim before. It's not historically founded. It's not scientifically logical. It's not even psychologically explanatory. Like there, there's, there, I've heard this claim before. It, it's not by any major scientist or even major atheist apologist. It's by like fringe random people making theories online. Like, and this is based off a presupposition, um, which is when you presuppose something and then you mm-hmm. try to make stuff fit into that framework right. before you even it's not super fringe anymore and they're like starting to make laws that can be medicinally used for like ptsd and stuff <laughs> yeah but but it, it has nothing to do with like applying that to the scripture when the scripture says nothing about it mm. is only ever done by people who say well because i know that god's not real this must have been a hallucination and that's an illogical point, uh, right you well assume- i was thinking specifically like the burning bush and really i was bringing it back to the vice thing in terms yeah. of what if this is a possibility because really what makes a psychedelic really any different than any other kind of medicine that people are okay taking to help you with something if oh, somebody sure. is having like a like you know, some sort of illness that a psychedelic could actually help you with. Is that, is that the same as every, as like other drugs that you can have some sort of addiction to? Uh, no. And, and, as a vice. Yeah. So, so, so uh, I've heard this before and there, there's very simple neurological and biological explanations for the differences between this generally based off the control, right? For if anybody has a medication that they have to take for something, do you know that it's not like scientists, you know, randomly threw a whole bunch of random chemicals into a jar and mixed it up and gave it an, as a pill. There's very specific 
orderly manipulation of certain molecules so as to avoid people uh, fundamentally losing either some type of control or behavioral stability or well that's not what happened in the opiates uh well no true but then sometimes you have with a case of opiates right and also as a general understanding because this is a presupposition a lot of people have that because something's natural therefore it's good that's well i in terms of opiates though it was like people knew that it was bad and those were evil people who let it continue to stay on the market even though it was like literally changing people's brain exactly exactly. and that's an excellent example of how just because something's natural doesn't mean it's good right Mm -hmm. that's just wicked manipulation by a group of people um with an extensive amount of using an addictive substance that they know to be addictive there's some there's some medicines that are not addictive but they do have a reduced effectiveness over time which is different from something that's addictive which you desire to have more and more of it, not because you need it or because it actually truly adds benefit, but because the chemicals over, you know, overflow and over flood the synapses in your brain to the point where your brain actually loses the ability or loses any energetic reason to promote your own serotonin. Because now, you know, oh, I can just get it in massive doses from this substance. Then the moment you stop that, your brain is like, well, I haven't really been producing my own serotonin for like a month. So So now you're, yeah so let's talk about the brain spirit mind yeah trifecta of then your brain chemically changing to be addicted to something that you didn't intentionally set out to become addicted to and those evils and Mm -hmm. griefs and suffering that comes along with that and then finding your way back into good, even though necessarily this wasn't your fault, but in the sense of, you know, the responsibility of a person to be good and do good and seek good, you know, how are you judged for that in the eyes of faith and God and Christianity? God does give people free will. I think that's the thing, right? People, um, this, this is actually applying the atheist materialistic mindset to the Christian faith. And so it's not an equal comparison. Uh, The reasoning being that in the Christian doctrine, it's very clear that humans, because humans have a spirit, humans have free will. Humans make choices. You might have genetic predispositions to something, but a genetic predisposition doesn't mean that you just have no choice and no free will. You Mm -hmm. make a choice because you're not just a flesh robot. You, you, You might have flesh, but you're not a flesh robot bound to only do one thing. You have a choice and God gives you a choice. Um, the issue with your question is you actually accidentally applied the atheist materialistic worldview to the Christian one. And I'll explain real quick what the atheist materialism is, because it's technically the only way to be an atheist properly. Um, according to all major atheists like Hitchens, Dawkins, uh, uh, Harris, you know, like all the major ones say there's no logical way to be anything but a materialist. A materialist is one who believes that the universe is just material. You know, there's no such thing as spirit or soul, if you want to use a Greek terminology, which is, I guess, what we call mind, right? There's no such thing as mind or spirit. You're just flesh. You're just material. There's nothing Mm. else. And so what do they make of conscience? They state that it's an illusion, that reason's an illusion, 
And I'm like, how did you get to that point? And they're like, I reasoned it. And I'll say, then you're wrong. Because um, <laughs> it's a paradox, right? It, yeah. It's an illogical statement. So a good question, because that's how that's how we should think, right? What about consciousness? And also the fact that consciousness is irreducible. I always recommend to people, Dr. Josh Rasmussen, excellent development of the ontological argument for Christianity and Christian thought by the irreducible consciousness, which is to say that you can't break a consciousness in half, right? Um, it's just a thing that is that we have the moment that we, uh, that God gives us consciousness. That's it. Anyways, back on. And that you can only experience yours. Exactly. Exactly. Right. You know, like it's a very unique thing and anybody who claims that there is none is using theirs to make that claim, which means that they're also wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Ironically enough, but back on to that question of uh, atheist materialism. So because they believe that everything is just material, like you are just a flesh robot, everything you do, Every, re- every choice you make is only because of your genetic predisposition, your chemical makeup, your current hormonal state, you know, inside your brain or inside other parts of your body. Uh, all of these come together so that every single stimulus around you, every single event before you, you're predetermined to only make one choice because of the chemical makeup in your body. You don't have free will. Your body's just reacting to the stuff in front of you. Even if you, according to the atheist materialist worldview, if you make a choice to wait on making a decision, that is a choice that you made because of your chemical makeup, because of your genetic predispositions, because of your hormonal state in your body as it is, as it stands, um, and because of all of your other neurons, which have chemical markers for past experiences, all coming together at that instance to force you to make a choice because you reacted to something in the, so eighth, you have what no do you, reaction. what do you make of, <laughs> what is your experience of movies? Like, um, days, have you ever seen X-Men days of futures past or like <laughs> the spider verse or the, the new movie, everything everywhere all at once, which is incredible. You have to see it. It's so good. It's so well done first of all, just like as a film, but, um, the, just those concepts of like parallel universe and multiverse and yeah. Yeah. Multiple um, conscience it, consciousness and things like that. Of course. Of course. So, you know, as, as a clear marker to, to start, um, multiverse is just religion. Um, and I state that and I know that's really inflammatory, but there is no logical proof for the multiverse. Um, actually what's funny is the multiverse theory in science and physics was developed in order to explain things that could not be explained. For instance, uh, many physicists stated, uh, there must be a multi, an infinite number of universes and ours just so happen to exist as it is. So then they could say ours is not special because there's an infinite number of ones and they'll, and you'll say, what's the evidence? And they'll say, there is none. And I'll say, well, then shut up because <laughs> you know you're just that's not science you're just making up clever it's good for movies i love into the spider-verse by the way mm-hmm. i i think that's an incredible i've seen it like seven the best it's, it's so, so good. good literally made me jump up <laughs> my my chair straight so, so good I, I love it so much and, and so it's great for storytelling it's really good for storytelling i love it for that but for people to apply that to like a legitimate way of viewing reality there's there's no evidence for it there Um, is none there is no evidence for it but do you ever like finish watching a movie like that and you're like what if yeah i probably like what if i made that choice or what if that happened instead or even oh sure there's there's a there's a show called for all mankind about um that sounds the soviets 
landing on the moon first. So what the world would have looked like if that had happened, Sure, sure. you know, different possibilities and and we'll never know. Of course. But is there a ton? Yeah. Those that's part of the alternate history genre. I do love alternate history. I actually recommend people go to alt history on YouTube. Really interesting. They just put in random scenarios and mm-hmm. just figure out what happens. Um, it's really intellectually interesting. But in the case of like, I'll say alternate timelines is in- intellectually interesting. Alternate universes is fundamentally nothing. Yeah, you know, there's there's there, there's not no basis for it. It was only developed to state that you know, in a different universe, the universe never would have existed. And I'm like, then it's not a universe. And they're like, oh, whoops. So you know, it, it's it's a very empty claim. That's kind of just it's fun on the pop level. It's kind of like back when uh, some people say, uh, what if you use 100 of your brain? And then any biolo- biologist and neuro you know neuroscientist on Earth said, what what does that mean? You do, and they're like, but it's really cool for movie stories. And it's like, yeah, but you you have your brain. What do you mean you use 10%? What does that mean? You know, it's just like a really, it's fun for stories. Talk about that more. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. This is a thing that was kind of developed as a general pop culture notion, right? Like, Oh, you only use 10% of your brain. If we used all of it, then we could have superpowers or something. Um, You know, and that claim is based off like an old comic book story or something. But do we only use 10% of our brains? Oh no, no. We, we have brains that, are constantly working at all times. Um, there's no part of your brain, like 90% Conscious, of your- Consciously though, we're not, we're only using 10. Oh, sure. But also like to state that we want to use hundred percent of our brain consciously doesn't really mean anything because then that would just mean, okay, so there's no unconscious. And so now I'm subdividing my brain. But then if I'm using hundred percent of my brain all the time, just some of it consciously, some of it unconsciously, then what's the actual difference if I uh, change to, okay, now I'm using 100% of my brain consciously, which means now I'm going to think about every smell I smell, or now I'm going to actually intellectually think about the Hertz frequency. Yeah. The inner ear. There's like no point to actually need it. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, because like- it's like having a computer and everything is open yeah. and not only are all of your apps open, but everything that could possibly be found online is up and running. And the movie um, where this, I think first happened, the Scarlett Johansson movie where she, yeah, that's um, that is Lucy, Lucy. Yeah. So even in that movie, it's like she's downloading things as needed. So she really isn't even using all of her consciousness at once ever until the end when she like just blows become- up basically. <laughs> Cause you, it, it's, also it, really- it's like, then the, the computer just like crashes cause it's too much. Exactly. Exactly. What's actually really interesting about the movie. Well, no, first I'll state you're right. That computer example is excellent because the notion of like, okay, let's let's change the idea to what if we used 100% of our unconscious mind, right? Then I'll say, okay, that's inefficient because now you're thinking about every smell that comes through. The mm-hmm. re- like, There's a biological, neurological reason why not all of our minds exactly. are conscious. It's yeah. because we would just be completely, it'd be cumbersome. We'd be thinking mm-hmm. about like every single, you know, small particle of light was that was in the corner of our eye instead of focusing, I'm driving right now. You know, And like, when you say particles of light, it's basically colors and depth perception and so when you're this actually is reminding me of um 
I don't know if it's like shows or YouTube videos where people will go around and ask someone what they remembered about a crime scene or a person or something. And it's like, that was not relevant to you. So you didn't remember how tall the person was or what color eyes they had or what color shirt they were wearing or how far away they were from you because it wasn't relevant. So while your brain saw it technically, like you walked past that person and you saw what they were wearing, you didn't internalize it or comprehend it in any kind of way because it was not relevant exactly yeah exactly so that's that's the main issue with and also lucy has a sad issue that falls into a lot of weird tropes which assumes that omniscience equates to omnipotence um that is that being all explain your big words david oh i'm sorry yeah yeah (laughs) so so, omniscience is the state of and i guess also omni sapience is the state of just knowing all things um, and for some reason, the movie equates, this even happens in a very, very strange, upsetting book with a very strange history. And I think it's called like the, the, the origin of the prime intellect or something. Very weird book, very disturbing, and disgusting, intriguing, conceptually, just disgusting. Anyways, it assumes that if something increases in intelligence, then now it also increases in omnipotence, which is power control. And so it's like, all right, I have a computer sitting in a chair and it gets more data. And eventually it gets to the point where it gets enough data that now it controls the sun and moon. And it's like, wait, no, no, where's the logical framework? How did you just hop from knowing a lot of things to now controlling literally all of Mm -hmm. reality, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very, like, it's fun for movies. And I think Lucy has a lot of fun visually with it. But conceptually, it's like, okay, but why though? You know, where, where, where did this hop come from? Like knowing a lot, because I know a lot of kids, you know, a lot of stuff. Well, that doesn't mean that they control more of the fundamental laws of reality than like a three-year-old, you know? Well, I um, think the, the thing about that movie was because you are expanding the consciousness. It's like that computer, but you, but it's not physical like the computer. It's your actual brain consciousness so it's the mind which i think i don't know when you think about people who and i this is clearly i think something that you will find to be an evil of the world but when you think of like tarot or people who are mediums or whatever that is in theory a part of their consciousness that other people wouldn't necessarily have access to. So if you are Lucy and you, your computer is open to all of these apps and, uh, and web, web addresses in that specific sense, if it wasn't a movie, if it was real life, those things would be relevant to her. And the example that we were talking about where it's not relevant for you to know those things for that character, they can't, because we are humans on a material plane, they Mm. can't really express what it would mean in a movie because that's also technically material. But in theory, there's so much running and so much access and so much um, like knowledge, but then translates to skill and power and things that you're able to do that then you just energetically have that kind of power. Yeah, I think no, in theory I, I, is what it was getting at. 
Sure, sure. I think the difficulty is that it assumes, so, so this actually goes back to what I was saying, because I, I thought this would come up, because it, it almost always does. Mm -hmm. uh, Josh Rasmussen's analysis of ontology, that is like the study of fundamental being, is what ontology is. Uh, his description of the irreducible consciousness actually also works in the other way. There is no way, in the same way that a consciousness cannot be like bro broken down. For instance, he explains it this way. This is the issue with atheistic materialism. And th he breaks it down this way. Let's say you have like this box, right? And does this box have consciousness, you know? I don't know. So so the most... The most <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, the most academically honest we can be is that this box is, well, in, in an atheist worldview this box is not conscious right well, we actually talked about this in the last episode right because i was like this curtain is god remember i said yeah, that yeah, yeah. Where so, i was like we are all god which is definitely a psychedelic feeling yeah so that's that's what we call panentheism we say splintered <clears throat> roar um and it doesn't exactly work in in the way that we all have such massive disagreements right um for instance if someone else was god like the very nature of that person was God. If I killed them, then that means that I literally killed the fundamental grounding of all existence and reality in an instant, thus causing the universe to cave in on itself. Thankfully, that doesn't well, happen. I would say God probably knows how to play chess. And if you let me kill him, there is something else about to happen. Sure. sure. My skepticism. <laughs> so so, so I, I can understand that conceptually. I think the difficulty is that there's no way to like logically approach it, right? Um, if I want to logically approach something, I can't make assumptions as much about like, for instance, uh, is there a possibility that someone doing tarot or future reading, right, is, well, I can't explain that their consciousness is expanding because I can't explain consciousness as being reduced, right? I can't con cut a consciousness in half, therefore I can't double a consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no state of consciousness being expanded in the same way that back to the conversation of psychedelics, psychedelics is not an expansion of consciousness. Psychedelics operates on a biological level and mm -hmm. the consciousness is not biological, it's chemical, right? It's material. Um, and so psychedelics from a neurological, biological, chemical analysis, biochemical to make it more succinct is operating on the synapses in your brain any hallucination somebody has on psychedelics is not because their consciousness is being expanded. It's just that the synapses for stimuli in their brain are being overexcited at every single possible turn and angle. And so there is a state at which the individual is so overstimulated that they experience hallucination, um, uh, external visualization of an internal thought process, right? Um, some terrible, awful, horrible thing right in front of them, whatever that might be. And so it's the issue is it actually conflates consciousness with biology, which we know cannot be because uh, consciousness is a thing you have apart from material, right? Otherwise, we go to the atheist materialism where we state that humans are not conscious at all or that consciousness is an illusion. You're just lying to yourself. You're just reacting. You have no free will. You have no choice. You just do what, just, what genetically you're predisposed, you know, predisposed to do. If somebody kills another person, they never had a choice in it uh in the atheist materialist worldview uh because again you cannot have free will in atheist materialism you just react um to things the way that you are supposed to according to your genetics and someone's what are your thoughts on an ndr 
Um, oh, oh, uh, uh, you mean like do not resuscitate? Kind yeah. Of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to, of course, I had to do a lot of this in the clinic. You know, yeah. you had to go with patients, get the lawyers, all that. <laughs> um, I, I totally get it. Uh, there's because there is a distinction between um, desired desired suicide and desiring to simply allow yourself at your old age or in a specific medical condition, specific medical state, um, to not be resuscitated. Right? There's do you think very, it's evil? No, no. Like if, if someone, you know, is like, if I'm at this age and I, you know, they sign the paper and they're like, I don't want to be intubated. I don't want to mm. be fed. I mm-hmm. can't say that's evil because I think that well, the weird thing about humans is they sometimes kind of want to like prolong their life in a weird mechanical sense as far as possible. Like, oh, I, I'll, I'll live in a bed until I'm 120, right? As long as I'm being fed through a tube and stuff. And I don't think there's anything wrong with not wanting to be fed through a tube or specifically if someone says, I don't want to, if, I, if I'm passed out on the ground, right? I mm-hmm. don't want to be resuscitated. They didn't choose to be passed out on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they just pass it on the ground. The distinction is actually just that they're stating if this medical scenario happens, do not do this, which is different from uh, suicide, in which if I cause myself this exact thing, then, you know, don't do anything about it. Of course, the whole point of suicide is that you do something that nobody could prevent. What about assisted suicide? That's a thing now. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is a thing that, that people do. That That's a difficult that's a bit more of a difficult scenario because assisted suicide is not homogenous you know there's some people um who state uh although i'm overall assisted suicide i do have a greater tendency to be against because Mm -hmm. it deals with the notion of people having incorrect evaluations of themselves uh more often than not people actually people who are not you know heavily disabled will support assisted suicide. And I find it very problematic. A lot of people who have no disabilities whatsoever will say, I think assisted suicide is okay because that person with that severe level of disability should be able to end their life because that disability makes their life less worth living. So to which that I say, no, that person is valuable. Um, For this person to be at the point where they think their life is not worth living is not so much an issue with their life as much as an issue with society and culture stating that they don't have anything to live for because they're disabled. Almost mm-hmm. all assisted suicide cases actually are because of some uh, acquired uh, disability. And I, and I state that's, I don't think that's logical. I don't, I don't think that's a healthy thing to do at all because there's a lot of people who uh, state that their life is worth living objectively. And I agree with them because I think humans have objective value. I, I know that goes against the atheist materialistic model, but I'm not an atheist materialist, so it's fine. Um, I think people have objective value. You know, like I think it's bad if you just kind of like walk down the street and shoot somebody in the face. I think it's bad if you say, oh, I'm genetically predisposed to be attracted to children. So I'm going to do this awful thing. I'm like, no, that's evil. Take responsibility for the fact that you're, you know, just evil and wrong and wicked. Um, although I know, again, atheist materialism says that person's not evil. They're just doing what they're supposed to do genetically. I know, but for a Christian perspective, it's wrong yeah. if, you have, if you like assault children. And it's also um, like if you were taking responsibility for it, then you probably wouldn't be doing the evil thing. So Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we hope. barely scratched the surface again. 
<laughs> of course we not. just keep scratching away and there's so much that we still are going to get into we're going to get into more c.s lewis i think in narnia we're going to get into actually perfect segue into the sex trafficking thing that we talked yes. about in the last episode and then maybe we'll save evolution for the end but we'll find out um by the next time we talk i'll have had some notes a little bit on evolution but there's still so much to get into and i just had so many tangents with this one <laughs> i just love the, these are just such great conversations um i'm excited to keep going yeah no me um, too. i love these conversations yeah well thanks for coming on this episode again and we will see you for part three next week. All right. Bye, David. Yeah, see you. Thank you for listening to the Pink Salt Podcast. Pink Salt is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Jacqueline Chantel. Sound production by Deb Daly and graphics by Alyssa Donaldson. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. See you next week.